All right, folks, here's part two of our episode on intracerebral hemorrhage and intracranial hypertension. Okay, so we can do that. And then, um, what are the, I mean, are they going to they want to come to another CT at some point, or what are we doing? Yeah, so they'd like, them to, they'd like his ICP to come down a little bit and get a little more stable, but then they'd like to repeat a CT. Yeah. Obviously, that's something we're following. There's, you know, challenges here. Traveling is a little dangerous in sick patients. Laying him flat is potentially sick, dangerous, and it's hard to CT scan people who are not flat. Um, so that's fine. I mean, obviously, we're following him in other ways as well. Um, I should say, uh, I hope that we've been keeping the family updated throughout all this. I know they were there in the ED. Uh, I, I, I like to try to impress upon them that... Um, you know, we're at a very early stage in these things, um, but certainly you have a very sick patient and you have a prognosis that's very uh, guarded. Usually they want more from me than that, but I, I, I tend to not offer it because I, I don't really know where this is going to go. But it's, it's certainly a very sick patient, someone who could die or, you know, be seriously neurologically disabled after this. And other than that, we, you know, we just need some time. <laughs> But I think updating them more often is better than, you know, ignoring them for four days and then trying to tell them that their husband's ever going to wake up or whatever. Sure. Yeah, so his wife's at the bedside, and she, she does ask you, you know, it seems like things are not going well. What What's going to happen? What are, what are his odds here? Yeah. I, I, I really try, tend to be cowardly about the, um, that conversation. <laughs> um, and partly it's because I, I don't think I'm the best person to answer it. I think uh, the the neurosurgeons who see a lot of this are are better. Maybe a, you know a very uh, experienced neurocritical care person, especially if they're a neurologist. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm so focused on the acute stabilization of these patients. Um, it's not like I follow them long term. You know, I don't see them six months later. Um, and there's probably the people who have followed the literature and stuff more closely as well. You can get some sense from um, their scoring system. So um, the ICH score, uh, it gives you some actual numbers you can play with, which can be helpful. I, I tend not to do too much of this because most of what I do, I think, doesn't change that much unless the prognosis is so dire that it changes your sort of goals of care early. Um, but what I do try to um, kind of get family thinking about with me is that um, we're – trying to stabilize the patient. Um, prognosis is very guarded. No matter what happens, this is going to be a prolonged process, meaning uh, patients get sick very quickly, but they take a long time to get better. So even if things go well, and this patient eventually has a good outcome, it's not going to be in three days. Um, every patient in the ICU is, is probably there longer than you'd expect them to be, but especially these neurologic patients. Um, so they kind of need to buckle in for a little bit of a longer haul than they might expect. Because um, I, I think when patients are very sick, they think they need to kind of be all hands on deck. They need to be at the bedside 24-7. They need to be sort of doing everything, even if they personally can't actually do much, but that's how they feel. And I, I, I kind of try to tell them, that's all great, but if that's how you act, you're going to burn out on this in like five days, when in fact you need to still be able to be involved in this process in like five weeks. So that's more the time course we're looking at here. And, you know, in a day and in two days and in three days, we'll know a lot more about where we're going with this. But in the meantime, uh, some patience. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and you're right. I always tell folks in the neuro-ICU, this, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, and at times like this where we're having some crisis stuff, it feels like a sprint. Uh, but it's really just a faster part of the marathon for a second. Right. So... <laughs> 
So you, you get him a little more stable. He goes down for a repeat head CT that shows pretty significant worsening of his hemorrhage. And he now has a eight millimeter midline shift. Um, so despite um, decompressing him with the ventriculostomy and your hyperosmolar therapy, he's continuing to swell uh, and his uh, ICP is continuing continuing to rise. Yeah. So we're definitely kind of moving towards a stage where we might need more aggressive management. Uh, I think the main thing to think about, and I'm not going to be the one doing this, but for the neurosurgeons would be, you know, decompressive craniectomy. Uh, you take off a flap of that skull, give the brain some room to swell. Uh, you know, if there's a, a pocket of blood, they c- it can be drained. Usually for these, you know, intraparenchymal bleeds, there is not. There, there is some... There are methods that they can try to stick a catheter down into those deep pockets and drain it, but it's not really the standard of care. Usually, you know, subdurals or maybe epidurals you can suck out from the surface, but mostly what we're talking about is giving room um, for swelling and to reduce the ICP. Um, you know, far from a, a slam dunk therapy, uh, last I checked, there's still no mortality benefit, really. Um, I'm sorry, there, you know, patients tend to survive more, but not necessarily to have a better neurologic outcome. Uh, which is you know, not necessarily what every patient or family would want. Um, but uh, I tend to leave these decisions kind of up to the, the neurosurgeons and the families. And uh, I think in patients who have otherwise a good functional baseline, it's often done because people want to kind of do everything they can early on and then see where we land, which is not unreasonable. Yeah, so you, you call neurosurgery back and tell them, hey, ICP is still up. We just got back from scan. doesn't look great. And they say, okay, let me look at the scan and we'll be down to see him. So they look at the scan and they come to talk to you and talk to his wife. And they say, we think he needs to go to the operating room. Um, So the wife consents. So they take him to the operating room for a decompressive hemicraniectomy. He comes back. His ICPs are better now. They're in the teens. Um, He is pretty heavily sedated on propofol. And they'd like to keep him that way overnight. So you sign out to the night team and uh, you go home. You come back in the morning and you find that he is he has had a relatively stable night. He did have to get another bolus of five percent, or sorry, of three percent uh, overnight. Um, but his sodium now is one forty three. Um, his blood pressure is pretty well controlled on you know reasonable like ten to twelve of cardine. Um, so on the high side, but not necessarily maxed out. Uh, and his ICP has been in the sort of 10 to 15 range uh, most of the night. Um, his exam is still very poor. He's very sedated. Um, and his wife says things are looking better or worse? Uh, so I, I would, you know, reinforce my earlier uh, themes of, of patients and that even though we've some time has passed. This is still pretty early. Um, but, I mean, I guess I'm curious, too. So if we if we do lighten up sedation, and even if we kind of let him rest overnight, which I think is fine, uh, we do need to occasionally be checking him out, um, what are we looking at now? We hold his propofol and everything, give him a little time to wash it out, and how is he looking? Is he waking up Good. at all? Yeah, so you hold his propofol for an hour or so, and he opens his eyes to voice. Um, he localizes to pain but doesn't follow commands yet. He is still... Um, plegic on that right side, um, so he's now a what is that a th- three five one? I'll take your word for it. I'll be honest. I, I don't 
pay a lot of attention to GCSs. Yeah. Uh, maybe I ought to, um, but I usually find that since I'm not going around doing a, a study where I need to quantify things in one number, um, I, I kind of get by with just describing, uh, you know, neurologic exams. You know, he, he localizes to pain, he doesn't move his left side, whatever. Yeah. To be honest with you, so we we throw around the GCS numbers all the time in the neuro ICU, um, but I had an attending pretty early on who told me, um, pretty frankly, I don't really care about anything except motor. Um, verbal, I don't care about, and eyes, I don't care about, because they're distracting, right? You can have a patient who's spontaneously opening his eyes who has no cognitive function, uh, and a patient who gets a one because he's a tube. Uh, so really what I care is motor. Does he follow commands? Does he localize? Does he withdraw? Does he posture? Does he do nothing? That's really all I want to know. So yeah, the number necessarily isn't that helpful. Uh, like you said, if you can describe it well, um, the number I think sometimes helps for trending purposes. You know, if you can say, well, he was a four and now he's a five, that's better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and it's, I think describing it tends to be a little more sensitive. I mean, if you have a, if you're you do a good exam or you have a, a good nurse who can do a really good exam. I mean, they, they can tell you about such subtle changes over time that would not be captured in the GCS at all or would be kind of, you know, lost in the numbers. You know, right. how he's twitching his, like, left toe slightly, I think, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. Well, and also remember, so the GCS is the best, right? So if he withdraws his left arm to pain and that's it, he gets a four. But if he, he could also not be moving anything else at all. That's different from he moves, he withdraws everywhere to pain. You know, that's a very different scenario. Um, so, yeah, you'll find, if, especially if you read neurology's notes, they go into painful detail on, you know, well, he does this with his right upper and this with his left upper and this with his right lower and this with his left lower. Um, you know, and, and they go into a lot of specific detail. You can also get times where a patient can follow commands without being able to move, right? So a patient maybe can stick out their tongue to command, but can't move their arms. Um, and so it becomes difficult sometimes when you just try to quantify it with a number versus, like you said, he's able to follow commands. Right. And, yeah, you know, it's probably maybe worth very just briefly talking about how we actually examine these patients. For me, uh, uh, all I'll usually focus on is, you know, address them verbally and see if they actually wake up for you. If not, give them painful stimulus, which um, I usually will do centrally, um, you know, pinch a peck is often what I'll do, maybe a trap pinch, um, and then see do they withdraw to that or do they actually localize it, which to me means they, they cross the midline right. to localize it. Um, mm -hmm. Or do they do not, nothing at all? Um, and then you can stimulate kind of various things. The, the important things to remember are that you can get a lot of just spinal reflexes that are responsive without actually involving the CNS, which is what you want. So, you know, the, the hands can, um, can withdraw or even squeeze sometimes if you put something in them as a pure reflex. Um, if you stimulate the legs, they can triple flex, meaning they, they flex at the hip and the knee and the ankle as a, a purely a spinal reflex. Um, so you, you need a little bit of an eye to kind of judge what's uh, more purposeful. Um, and then if you get to someone who has really nothing in what you think is a central response, um, you start looking at cranial nerves. So do they do they cough if you run a suction catheter down their tube? Do they gag if you stick a yank hour in the back of their throat? Um, obviously, their pupillary responses. Um, do they blink if you touch their, their cornea with a little bit of gauze or a little bit of saline? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then you get into cold calorics and doll's eyes and then finally uh, like apnea testing for brain death. But I think kind of a tiered approach like that, because there's no point in going around doing apnea tests on patients who are, you know, opening their eyes to you. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, if you follow the same patient over a period of time, it's obviously much easier. You know exactly what they did yesterday. Now you're seeing kind of like we were talking about. All right. You know, yesterday he kind of opened his eyes, but didn't really track or seem to have, you know, anything purposeful. Today he, he kind of looked at me a little and that seems new, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and you, you bring up a good point with being able to sort of suss out the details of the exam. I find that there's two, two big things that are very commonly confused uh, among families and even a lot of times among non-neuro nurses. So if I have a patient in the trauma ICU or even the cardiac ICU or someplace like that, uh, nurses who aren't used to doing really solid neuro exams, um, and that's triple flexion versus withdrawal. Um, so like you said, when you pinch the toe and you get the flexion at the hip, the knee, and the ankle, that's triple flexion. That's a spinal reflex. That's not a withdrawal. Um, the other one is the squeezing hand, um, right? And families get this confused all the time. He, he squeezed my hand. Um, so squeezing hand can very much be a reflex uh, and not a following command. Um, I always joke that I can get any patient to follow commands if I give them the right command. Uh, you know, if I say, lay perfectly still, follows commands you know so when you i so i don't ever use squeeze my hand as a follows command unless i have a patient who is alert um maybe on the ventilator who's who's alert and i can tell they are following uh, and i just want to assess their strength bilaterally i don't do squeeze my hand i do show me your thumb show me two fingers something a little more complicated um, of note releasing a grip is not a reflex so if they can release your hand to command then you can call that following commands. So if you put your hands, they squeeze my fingers and they squeeze and now release and they release on command, then that's more reliable, more reliably following commands as opposed to just a spinal reflex. Right. I'll use squeeze as like a, a screen because I think it's very easy to do. Yeah. Um, so it's most sensitive, I guess. But if they do it and I'm not totally clear on if it was real, then I'll go to something more specific, which, like you said, um, you know, show me a thumb or show me two fingers, something more specific. Um, the only exceptions maybe are people who, you know, they have a reason why they can't use their hands. So say they have a spinal cord injury or something. And then sometimes you got to look for central things like, you know, open your eyes, close your eyes, stick right. your tongue out, something like that. Right. And when I do things with the face, I tend to try to make it very exaggerated. Like close your eyes very tight. Um, you know, open your eyes really, really wide. So it's it's definitely them doing what I've asked and not simply they happen to close their eyes at the same time that I say close your eyes. Um, right. You know, something like that. Um, sticking out tongue, same thing. Stick out your tongue really far. Stick it out, you know. Um, and try to make sure that I, I watch them a little bit before I give them a command to try and get an idea of what spontaneous movements are they making um, so I don't ask them to do one of those um, where it gets confusing. But right. like you said, at, at times it's just very confusing to tell if a person is doing something purposeful or not. Right. And that kind of ties back to where we're at. So, you know, the family was asking, is this patient doing better? I mean, they, they seem to be on exam. Um, but you know, th this is a, you know, a marathon, not a sprint. There's going to be 
fluctuations in how we're doing here, even on the exam, even on things like the CT scan or the ICP or anything we're following here. Um, any moment-to-moment -moment thing is not necessarily going to tell the story. So yes, I mean, I, I'm sort of glad that things look a little better. Um, but, you know, it would still kind of reinforce that the patient's still real sick and we're, we're still in a very much of a danger zone. And to really, for us all to feel better, I, you know, I want to see continued improvement over, you know, a greater period of time. So two days later, you're in ICU, things are, you're going, making rounds, things look very good. He is now opening his eyes spontaneously, following commands with his left side. Um, but he's still failing spontaneous breathing trials. Um, he, he can last about 30 minutes to an hour on pressure support, and that's about it. Um, and his wife says, you know, he seems to be much better, but I'm really concerned the nurses say he can't come off the ventilator. What are we going to do? Well, um, I think, you know, we're two, three days in. I, I think we're still in a period where we're kind of waiting and seeing. Certainly, it should be in the corner of our minds, and I, I probably would raise this with families or, uh, as early as this, um, that if he continues to be unable to get out the ventilator and we're still doing everything we can to you know, help him recover and prolong his life, then um, usually we're talking about uh, a tracheostomy, maybe a peg tube. Um, some patients like this who are otherwise quite well um, maybe can avoid a peg. Sometimes they can eat with their trach, but um, often at least for the short term. But um, you know, a, a few days like this, but with a pretty good trajectory of recovery, I think it's probably reasonable to give him some more time. Um, you know, traditionally we say maybe a couple weeks is your cutoff for being on with an endotracheal tube. Maybe a week if you um, are, you really feel like that's where you're going. Certainly, if you don't see them getting away without a trach, you could do it sooner, and maybe there's benefit in that. Um, you know, if this patient had had little to no recovery, I, I think maybe doing it rather early might make sense if they if they want that. Um, but, you know, he's been improving reasonably well, so I, I would probably try to give him at least a few more days. And if there's really, you know, not much sign of further recovery, maybe we talk about doing the trach then. Again, if that's what the family is looking for, you know, I don't know where they've been at as far as his goals of care. but Sure. So I think when it comes to airway management of these patients, it's a little bit different um, than what we typically think of in the MICU or even the surgical ICU. Um, in two big ways. One is like you mentioned, typically we dis we sort of hold the tracheostomy discussion for seven to 14 days of intubation, depending on who you are and what study you've read. Um, and, and that's when we start having the trach discussion. So in the neuro ICU, we typically will trach people a lot faster than in other places. And that's based on a couple of different things. One, like you said, what are his, uh, what is his neuro recovery like? So in someone who's had a pretty decent neuro recovery and very poor ventilatory recovery or, or pulmonary recovery, um, we would consider early tracheostomy um, because and in someone who's over their acute stroke um, pretty rapidly, then they're ready from a neuro standpoint to move on to rehab. And rehab is really what's going to benefit them in the long run in terms of morbidity. Um, and so someone who's on a ventilator um, with an endotracheal tube is not going to be able to go to neuro rehab most places and get therapy. So we will often discuss pretty early on doing a tracheostomy to allow them to go ahead and get to a neuro rehab center and wean off the vent there. 
The other um, thing we will talk about trach is in someone who has recovered from a pulmonary standpoint very well, um, but ha- is having a slow neurological recovery and needs the ventilator or needs the needs an airway for airway protection. Uh, so a lot of times a tracheostomy facilitates getting off the ventilator in these patients because you can um, get them off of the ventilator while still preserving a uh, intact plastic airway, if you will, uh, to hold their airway open. The other thing I think that's sometimes weird and confusing to people with neuro patients and airway is we extubate people with very poor GCS all the time. So there's sort of this GCS less than eight intubate uh, mantra that is in a lot of the in the ED and uh, a lot of the medical ICUs and stuff, and we don't extubate people with a GCS of less than eight because of concerns for airway protection. Uh, but a lot of these folks are not going to get very good GCS. They're going to have um, very poor levels of consciousness and alertness, but they're still going to be able to protect their airway. Um, and that's just a res- as a result of their neurological injury. So we successfully extubate people in the neuro ICU with low GCS all the time. Uh, and it's something that I feel probably takes just a little bit of experience with to know when you're, you're going to have someone who's going to be able to, to tolerate extubation, uh, even though they're not alert. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, you know, one of the things I try to remember is that um, outside of acute injury or illness, you know, people with more chronic conditions like, um, say, dementia, I mean, there are a lot of these patients uh, walking around or perhaps sitting around who uh, are nonverbal and don't follow commands and are kind of somnolent a lot of the time, uh, and they don't have an airway. Absolutely, Um, yeah. Now, at the same time, some of these patients may be, um, you know, occasionally or or subclinically aspirating at times. I mean, not that that doesn't happen, um, but, you know, is it for the best that they would, you know, 24 hours a day have a trach in place or something? I mean, I don't. I don't think so. Maybe right. at a point it gets to that point. Um, so there's there's kind of a, a balancing act here, especially again if you have a patient who's not going to get better or you know not not anytime soon. Um, if that's how they're going to be for the next six months until they have kind of some gradual further recovery, then maybe it's they're best off not having anything in place at that time. Um, and you know, I, it's kind of weird sometimes because. You, you trach a patient who's intubated, it's not, you're not fixing anything. It's not, you're not really treating anything. Right. And it's not even like there's clear evidence that there's a lot of things that are, are better medically. It's almost like, a, it's like an epiphenomenon. It sort of just facilitates goodness. Um, you just have to sort of at some point do it. You know, it's, it helps you kind of mobilize them. It helps you advance their kind of nutrition plans. It helps you dispo them, as you said, get them out right. of this place. Um, you know, now all of that, or a lot of that may be possible without it. And that's, I think, a good reminder too. If you're saying we should trach them so we can, you know, start rehab and get them out of bed. Well, you could probably do that with the ET tube too. It's just harder. Sure. And those are both true. <laughs> so, you know, you should probably try to do that today, but you should also probably try to trach them so you can move things along. And we start to think, get mad sometimes that you know things are not moving along because from our perspective, the patient is stuck in our ICU and we wish they weren't. Um, but that's kind of our problem. Um, but it's equally true that you know in the long run, things should move along for everyone's benefit and the patient languishing in this neuro ICU for a month is probably not for the best. Right. 
Well, and so what I would say in terms of rehab, because uh, you're right, you know, we can and should get patients who are intubated up out of bed and work with rehab. Uh, I, for me, what I sort of use as a decision is, are they acutely ill uh, that they need to be in an ICU or are they simply in the ICU because they're on a ventilator? If they're simply in the ICU because they're on a ventilator, do they, do they need the ventilator for some sort of pulmonary problem or is this just they're not quite ready to come off the ventilator from a neurological standpoint yet? If that's the case, if that's the only thing keeping them in the ICU or even the hospital, then probably a better place for them to get rehab is at a rehab hospital where the nurses are trained to do that and the physical therapy is going to be more involved and stuff like that. Uh, but you're right, right? If they are just, if they're still acutely ill and need to be in the ICU, uh, then we shouldn't use lack of tracheostomy as an excuse to not be actively rehabilitating them. Right. And you're right. It's, you know, a lot of places are better at, at these general kind of rehab activities than we are in the ICU. Um, and frankly, there's probably risks that are, you know, greater in the ICU. Um, we have more infections floating around and things like that. Um, so it is for the best to kind of move patients along and get them out of the, the hospital, even if it doesn't mean home, you know, playing racquetball. It right. means going on to the next step in their care. Right. I sort of use the trach peg discussion as a decision point, too. So in a, in a patient that's having a less than ideal recovery, whose prognosis is not great, um, that becomes a, a nice point to talk with the family of, you know, so far we've been doing all of these things, and now we're sort of at a decision point to how we're going to proceed. And we can use this sort of as a goals of care talk, right? If we feel like they're probably not going to get a lot better, this is the time where we want to talk about what would they value in terms of quality of life. If we do the tracheostomy and the PEG and they go to a facility where maybe they'll get better, but the odds are they're not going to get a whole lot better, is that okay? Is that something that they would still want? And a lot of times this is where families can sort of really start to think about, yeah, so uh, I think he would be fine as long as he was awake and kind of alert and knew what was going on, even if he couldn't care for himself, uh, and even if he had to be on a ventilator. So, yeah, we go ahead and let's do the trach and the peg. And sometimes families will say, no, he wouldn't want to be dependent like that. Um, you know, I, I think maybe this is a time to talk about just making him comfortable and, and proceeding in a different path. So I think tracheostomy and peg both are good decision points for that sort of talk. Yeah, and especially if we've been putting it off as I had been, um, that's usually when enough time has passed that you, ha you do have some sense. And it's not that the patient may not still have some further recovery, but it's sort of, you know, logarithmically decreasing. At this point, it's probably unlikely they're going to have a tremendous, you know, kind of qualitative you know, further leaps in their recovery, it's probably going to be more incremental. So right. what you're looking at is probably in the ballpark of where they're going to end up long term. Right. Well, and in terms of prognostication, I'm, I'm sort of with you in that I think it, it all depends on who's giving the prognosis, right? I am a neurointensivist, so I see patients in the ICU. I can give you the odds of survival and the odds of recovery in the short term, um, but I'm not a neurologist. I don't. I'm not a rehab specialist. I don't follow these people long term, and so I think. And when it gets in terms of 
it becomes clear they're going to survive their hospitalization, what is their long-term outcome going to be, that's when I would defer to the neurologist or the rehab team um, because they have more experience with that sort of thing. Yeah, and that, that definitely, I, these are not good conversations to have only with the ICU team, I think. Right. Because, I mean, really, what, what do we know? And that, that's why I'm often excited to see some of these patients. Maybe they come to visit or they turn them back in the hospital, you know, a year later or something. Yeah. Because um, sometimes they are doing surprisingly well, and it's really, you know, kind of healthy for us. You know, sometimes not, but either way, the, that long-term follow-up is helpful because we just see such a small slice of their care. Yeah, I tell, uh, and the nurses especially sometimes, uh, you know, we we got to be careful not to get too down on what we do because we see people at their worst point of their of their illness or their injury, right? And there are a lot of these patients who may not come back into the ICU to follow up, but if you talk to the people who follow them in clinic, you find out that they actually really, a lot of them do really well. And, you know, maybe we see them and they, they look awful and they look kind of awful when we send them to rehab. Um, and we think, gosh, what are we doing? We just, you know, we just sort of keep people along and we're not really helping anybody. And you get sort of down. And I always say, we got to remember that a lot of these people do turn the corner because, like you said, this is a marathon. Um, and we're there for the first hundred yards. Yeah. And you want to make sure that the, the decision you're making um, is, is not because we as caregivers or the family or decision makers are are uncomfortable it's because they think the patient wouldn't want it right because i think often we we just we don't really like looking at this patient anymore maybe we're a little bored of them the family is really uncomfortable about the whole thing which you know understandably and so they, they kind of run out of of steam and they their recovery has not been you know super fast so they say well maybe this has been long enough but you know maybe the patient would have given another three months right yeah and, and vice versa. You know, I see those patients, those families who just hold on and hold on. And they say, I can't, I just can't let go of mom. Um, and when you finally get them nailing down, well, what, would, what would mom say? They say, well, mom wouldn't want any of this. Um, but I have guilt and I can't let go kind of thing. So, yeah, you're right. It's very important that we, you know, and we judge family members for doing this. But you're right. We as staff do it too, right? We make our own decisions on what we would value. And I can't believe we're doing all this for this person, you know, when they're clearly not going to get better. Well, that's, that's your value. That's not necessarily their value. Right. So yeah, it's good for all of us to try to look at it through the the patient's eyes and you know, whatever it is they're, they're looking for is probably what we should be going for until we get to a point where there's maybe not enough resources to take care of all these patients, which is a whole nother matter that hopefully we won't have to tackle anytime soon. Right. Well, I think we have talked quite a bit about this, and I think we're kind of running out of time, so um, unless there's anything else. No, I, I think we hit all the important stuff. Um, you know, the big things to remember for these patients, I think, uh, you know, as we've talked about ad nauseum, a, a sense for prognostication and realistic uh, expectations is important to create from the beginning. Um, and then from a critical care perspective, a lot of it is supportive. I mean... A lot of this injury happens at the time time zero. Uh, mostly, what we're doing is trying to prevent further injury, and we have some ability to do that. And some things we can't prevent. Um, and it's very, very multidisciplinary for sure. Yeah. Um, you should be really closely involved with your neurosurgeons, your neurologists, all these other specialties like therapy. Um, they really all have an important role here. There really is no pill or procedure that fixes these patients. 
um, it's kind of tincture of support and time um, and kind of letting things unfold. And that's why, you know, even I sometimes find neurocritical care to be a little frustrating or even depressing because, you know, you, you can't really, you know, wave your hand and fix things. It, it's you kind of have to wait it out and let the disease evolve. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode. I uh, hope you found it helpful. We'll put a couple of um, resources on the website. I'll put a link to an article discussing uh, reversal of these DOAC drugs in, uh, in acute intracerebral hemorrhage. We'll put also up there some information about the IC, ICH score that Brandon mentioned earlier. Um, it I find it is helpful in terms of neuroprognostication in the early stages when you can look at the, the mortality odds. Um, it's something that you can use when you talk with families. Um, and I, I always, like Brandon said, I use it cautiously and say, you know, if, if I took a, a hundred people with this disease, 72 of them would not survive 30 days. That doesn't necessarily mean that your husband or father or brother or mother won't. I'm just telling you that that's sort of what we can expect in terms of how sick they are. Uh, so I think it can be very helpful. So we'll put some information about that up there as well. All right. Well, um, it's been fun, and I guess we'll reconvene in a couple weeks and talk about some more cases.